In light of recent events, Kieran, myself and our guest Paul Mendes took some time out to discuss the events surrounding George Floyd's murder, racism and what we can do to try and fight it. Um, just in already on the subject, it's, um, it's a bleak and depressing one, to be honest with you. And I think it's, um, it's, yeah, it's something that you said, is that that's, this is not something that I want to be talking about when we were arranging to have this, um, to have this, um, this podcast, this, do this recording. It wasn't on my mind to have to, um, have to be like, discussing the deaths of like, another, um, another black man um, in America. But these are the times we live in. Uh, this is a landscape we're in, and this is what we've been faced with for the last uh, for the last week or so. And I think, Zorgoki. I was gonna say um, for me particularly, it's a cycle because you do feel like there was a period a few years ago where we were having these conversations all the time because it was like every week or every fortnight there was a new killing, like, new like unlawful killing by a cop on a person, on a black person, um, and then it dies down a bit you know I hear people talk about it and you kind of deceive yourself into thinking oh maybe things are better but then when it happens again you feel like well what can we do differently um mm-hmm. oh, and if there's anything we can actually do differently to be fair um and other people who are, who are perpetrating mm-hmm. but that's why it's exhausting because it's it's like a rinse and repeat cycle mm-hmm. um, exactly and we're we're almost being gaslit into thinking that we have to change and we have to do something different as black people like we have to somehow take ourselves out of the firing line, you know? Mm. George Floyd had a fake banknote. That's apparently why he was arrested. Um, Mm. I've worked in restaurants. I worked in restaurants for over 15 years and I worked in retail as well. And the amount of people that came in with fake notes that, you know, you're too busy to even pay attention to properly. Well, it was a lot. It happened like almost on a weekly basis. I didn't see anyone die over that. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I'm sorry, I find it really upsetting. It's probably because I've spent the whole day writing about it. But yeah. um, nobody deserves to die. You know, he didn't fight back. You know, I don't care what they said. We've got the video evidence. He did not mm. resist arrest. He was a big man. He was tall. He was big. Like, you know, if it was a fair fight, he would have probably won, okay? But he didn't resist arrest. He wasn't aggressive. And what is he supposed to do when he's got someone's knee on his neck, a whole grown man's knee, putting all of his body weight down on his neck when he's face down on the floor? What is he supposed to do, you know? And we can't be gaslit into thinking that we have to change. There's nothing we can do. If someone wants to kill us, if someone is trained to kill us and they have the law on their side, what can we do? Yeah. Mm. You know, if they can be trained like dogs to sniff out and kill black people, which is exactly what we saw with Armored Aubrey, then they can be trained not to. Mm -hmm. And why aren't they? Which suggests to me that the racism, the white supremacy, the black hatred, it's at the very top. And we can see that. We can see from the president's tweets how his dog whistling, you know. Mm, the coded language. Uh, yeah, exactly. Telling, um, telling his followers that um, the protesters who ran out fully armed on State House a few weeks ago to protest against uh, the lockdown, uh, they're good law-abiding Christian God-fearing people, 
Mm-hmm. But the protesters in um, uh, Minneapolis, Minneapolis, and in Atlanta, Detroit, and everywhere else that's currently um, seeing unrest, that they're thugs. Mm-hmm. You know what's the difference? The difference mm-hmm. is the skin color, and the difference is white supremacy, and this kind of what Bell Hooks calls this imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy that we're all sort of still um chained to um you know it's not for us to do anything different it's them who have who have to change and yeah it's us who has to actually just keep sort of trying to enforce that i do agree with that i just think it's like it's hard like us as black people me as a black man i understand that like if um, if these behaviours are to change, if racism is to change, and if we are sort of truly to be seen as equal, that means that like it's ultimately up to white people, to people in those positions, the power to change, uh, change attitudes, change yeah. actions and practices and procedures. But at the same time, it kind of makes me feel as if like I'm at mercy to like these people at the same time. As well, in, James James Baldwin oh. said in the seventies. How long does change take? How long do you need to change? How long do they need to change? Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, it's been so long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're still not changing. Nothing is changing. Every day is some other shit. You know, it's not changing. It's not changing for the better, at least. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just had to sort of stick that in there because, you know, it just goes to show, um, you know, there's, there's really not much... I mean, I absolutely agree with you that white people need to take it, you know, um, upon themselves to educate themselves, to um, interrogate and dismantle white supremacy and, um, you know, the entire sort of structure of racism uh, that sort of falls beneath that. But they're not doing it. Mm -hmm. So we have to, I'm sorry, do our duty. Like, that's unfortunate because um you know i'm a writer like white white people who are writers don't necessarily have this to do Mm -hmm. so i have this to do as a full-time job on top of being a writer in term on top of being a student and on top of all the other things that i have to do Mm -hmm. i have now the full-time job of interrogating white supremacy of interrogating racism interrogating structural inequality that's something that i have to do now yeah, and it's something that we all do because otherwise they're not going to be held to account, and they're not going to change. Yeah. So I guess as like an artist, as um, as a writer, the published author, so do you see it as it's your duty to kind of like to question these structures, to um, to really like examine them and to call them out where possible? Is Absolutely. The... Yeah. Because okay. who else is going to do it? True. Yeah. You know. You know. I have a privilege of being a published author, of being able to communicate with a number of people on this subject. And I have to be seen to be doing that. I can't be seen, you know, for a long time, I've looked at certain people and thought, why are you so quiet about this? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to be one of those people. I'm going to use my privileges. I'm going to use the platform that I've been given uh, to, to speak up and do my duty. Yeah. This whole situation is a, is like is a is a really tough one because 
I have much, yeah, I just want to, like, I just kind of want to know what to do for the best and, like, how do we, like, where do we go from here? How, like, you know, what are we supposed to, what are we supposed to do? And, like, I know that the situation that we're in is not of our choosing, it's not any of our faults. But, like, much like you, I guess, I want to do, I want to do something as well and I want to, like, pull my energies and resources into things that's going to help build us up rather than watch people tear us down. Hmm. And it's just hard. Yeah, it's just hard. I, do, I don't even have a point to make, to be honest with you. It's just, um, it's just really difficult. I, I, find, I feel exactly the same. I'm sorry, Karen. Karen. Oh, also, I find, a, a, well, the difficulty I find is that because the worst of it that we're seeing is sort of looking at America, hmm. I feel slightly powerless not being physically there. Um, I feel like, apart from spreading awareness, what can we do here? Um, obviously, we know it's not hunky-dory here by any means. Hmm. But like the continued like you know killing that's happening there we know a peaceful protest doesn't seem to be doing anything mm. um i understand people rioting looting i don't it doesn't particularly bother me that people do loot but i see it as what will it do i feel like the only kind of you know what retribution that can be done is to fight fire with fire mm. but then where will that land people with because i think looting is not really a vengeance against what's happened but as well, if we were in earlier times, it'd be a case of an eye for an eye, and if they kill one of us, we kill one of them. Mm. But then again, that doesn't seem to be a practical outcome anyway. So th- there is just a feeling of helplessness that I have. Um, yeah, I then, understand uh, that. But the, but the peaceful protesting, I, I definitely that that it doesn't need to do anything at all. It's not going to change, I don't think. I'm just doing that. Well, no, um, maybe not. But you know, first of all. Um, you know, there are certain things that are happening in, in the US that have um, traveled worldwide. You know, you know, the whole world has seen this um, video of George Floyd. Um, I've seen tweets today um, in Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, mm-hmm. talking about the video, talking about the response of some um, American celebrities to the case. Um, and I think that's great. That's all very good. You know, the response I've seen from black and white people has been incredibly strong and incredibly like, you know, the disgust has been great and it's been widespread and it's good that that's, that that's happened. Um, but first of all, we have things going on in this country as well that Mm -hmm. are sort of not being taken seriously. Like the case of Belly Mujinga, the Mm -hmm. tube worker, um again like so angering so upsetting that someone can have their memory um indignified in this way um when the case for them actually finds in favor of the person who spat in their face and told them that they had the coronavirus mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um no further action to be taken by the police. At least, you know, if you spit at a tube worker, at least that's assault. Mm-hmm. At least that's, um, you know, and if you tell them then that, you, that, they, that you've got coronavirus and that you're transmitting that, you know, knowing that black women are st- statistically four times more likely to die of coronavirus than any mm-hmm. other, than, than women of, uh, of, of a white background, for example. Um, that is at least in intention 
mm-hmm. you're intending to harm that person. Mm-hmm. And yet you're getting away scot-free from that. You know, I don't even know who this person is. Has he been identified? That's, I, I haven't caught up with... I remember when it first broke, but I know in the last day, that's when they've announced that they're not doing anything, so they say. But I wasn't sure if they'd, if they'd apprehended the person that did it. So um, I looked talk- on... Literally, actually, before we started this, I did have a look on Sky News. The person hasn't been identified. Hmm. They say that they questioned a man and that he'd had a negative test of coronavirus, which is why which is why apparently he's not, he's not being prosecuted. But you make, uh, I think you make the point that um, even if he didn't have coronavirus, the fact is that like a man assaulted a woman, a man mm. spat in the face of a woman. Mm. And if they've tracked down the person who, who did this, who spat on someone, then I don't understand what is, like, what is stopping the police from charging him at least with assault, at least. Mm. So I, I, I'm struggling to understand why that is the case. And nothing that I've seen in, um, in the media, in the newspapers, had quite explained that to me. But the whole structure of that story just smacks of racism. Mm-hmm. You know, from uh, the um, TFL not taking it seriously in the first instance, taking, you know, ages, I think it was two weeks or something, to, to report the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then nothing was done about it at all until, until after um, Ms. Mijinga was already dead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's far too simplistic to sort of turn the tables and say, well, what, what if this happened to a white person? Because I don't think this would ever happen to a white person. I don't think any black person would ever go up to a white person just doing their job and spit in their face and say, I've got coronavirus. Mm-hmm. I just can't see that happening. No. I can't see that happening. No. And I can't see that person then not being apprehended immediately. We wouldn't have to wait. (laughs) We wouldn't have to wait until that person died and then we wouldn't be asking the question. That person would not have got away scot-free from that, I'm afraid, Mm -hmm. if he was black. That person would have been prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Absolutely. Within 24 hours. (laughs) If that. (laughs) (laughs) If that. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's just so, like, this whole lockdown has just demonstrated to me that nothing has changed. And if not, it's worse than before because we know better now. We know from the past, we should have learned from our mistakes and we haven't and it's worse. Yeah. And we're seeing it happen in real time. We're seeing people not giving a shit in real time as well. Uh You know, I'm seeing race being blamed for the mortality rates in this country being so high because black people are so statistically um, much more vulnerable than other races. That's how it's been broken down. It's been broken down by race and not by class. Mm-hmm. So you're not, you're not seeing that perhaps white working class people are just as at risk as black working class people, but you're not seeing it broken down by class, just by race. And so if you're thinking race, race, race. I got the worst look yesterday. Um, yesterday I went to do some recording at um, Broadcasting House and I was walking home sort of towards Regent's Park and I um, came to a crossing and this sort of elderly-ish man could see from over the corner of his shoulder, over his shoulder that there was a, a black person approaching and he glared at me and made sure I knew not to come near him. Mm-hmm. So I stood a few meters back at the crossing 
And then all kinds of other people came up to the crossing and he didn't care. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at them, I'm thinking, oh, you're white people, but I'm black. And he's looking at me like, and I had a mask on. He he didn't have a mask, Mm -hmm. you know. And he's looking at me as if to say, don't come anywhere near me with your coronavirus or whatever's going through his mind. I don't know what, but it just made me think like, this just, this is the world we're living in now. And, you know, I can't leave the house without my partner who's white. Mm-hmm. You know, without feeling vulnerable, without feeling like, okay, like I'm out here on my own. Nobody knows who I am. I don't have my white partner here to vouch for me. What could happen? You know, yeah. and it's, it's really frightening. Sorry, I keep interrupting. Oh, no, it's fine. It's exhausting that kind of situation because you you know exactly why it's happened. But if you dare say anything to anyone, it's always a case of, oh, I'm exactly. thinking it's just in your head. Exactly. It's all about that. Like it's exactly. rinse and repeat, and it's just exhausting. Um, to the point you, yeah, I'm in a weird place. I'm kind of between apathy and like total rage. Like yeah, flicking back between them. <laughs> and that's um, really bad for our mental health to be in that mm. place. Really bad because it desensitizes us at the same time as enraging us, and you know that's that's just a, a really toxic combination. And it's one that I that I know quite well, and it's but it's one that I am no longer going to in, keep internal. Yeah, mm. it has to be externalized. And you know, I, like I said, I'm lucky that I that I write and that I can sit down and actually sort of go through the, all all of this. Yeah, um, and sort of write down my thoughts, order them, get it out there, communicate it with other people so that they can see that there's someone else maybe who thinks the same way as they do, because otherwise it's just it's internal and it's frustration and it's anger and it's um, fear and it's stuff that we can't deal with if it's inside. Mm-hmm. And obviously when we internalize things like this, they all, often, they still come out, but they come out in just like really unhealthy ways, really exactly. ways that even good for you. So mm-hmm. yeah, 100%. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, like when I wrote that little blog post, it's like 1500 words or something. Um, and I just felt like I, I felt like I'd done nothing. Mm-hmm. I, it felt like, you know, to, to use a cliche, it felt like a drop in the ocean. Yeah. Mm. That every sentence, every fragment, almost every word was so loaded that like I could write a polemic about all of it, mm-hmm. you know, and it could just sort of expand and expand and expand because we're dealing with, we're dealing with history and we're, we're dealing with, um, things that just will not change, you know, things that affect us all and things that are just so full of different little intersections and nuances. Um, it's just, it's a lot. And that's why I kind of see it now as sort of a full-time job mm-hmm. when I've got, um, you know, people saying, oh, can you do this um, project or can you write about this or can you do that? I'm kind of thinking, well, that's actually taking my time away from actually dealing with the sorts of things that make me fearful of my life mm-hmm. as a black man and as a black queer man. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, yeah, it's difficult, but I'm ready for the fight. Yeah. Yeah. I think on that note, one thing I do want to say, I always try to, like... I don't know, put something positive on things like this. So 
Um, I think it's great that you are, it seems like you're taking responsibility for using your platform to, like I said, um, highlight areas of inequality, um, that make your feelings known about it, which I think is so important. And it can give, it can give other people, people like me, people like Kieran, other people who come, in, come across your work, like kind of like that language that they can then use to kind of like process things themselves, which is so important. But at mm. the same time, especially like us as black queer people, I always want to stress that like, um, we need to do that. We also need to make sure that we're writing ourselves and like make sure that you're doing everything that you can to kind of like keep your own mind sane, keep everything yeah. like ticking over for yourself. Mm. So, um, I absolutely agree. And I can only do this. Like I said, I'm quite privileged now. Like I can only do this because I am happy and I'm, I feel like I'm loved and I'm in a safe space. Mm-hmm. And that's the only, that's the only reason I can, do that yeah. that I can sort of commit to that you know if I if even one of those things that I just described briefly was missing I wouldn't have the strength yeah and maybe I don't who knows but I have to try and yeah. I have to sort of you know I cannot be seen to be complicit by not being explicit mm-hmm. yeah that's true well as long as you're that you found that you are but you're doing that work to make sure that you're all right, that your mental health is in check, that like um, you're doing to build yourself up as well. Like I think um, we were saying that like um, you can, if you're if you've got holes in your cup, then then it's then then it's just gonna keep keep leaving and emptying you and going somewhere else rather than keeping it for yourself. So you can then yeah. more for other people. Probably a bad use of that the analogy, but I think you know what. I mean. No, not at all. <laughs> 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 yeah, getting getting um, biblical again. Like, oh, my cop run us over. Like that. <laughs> but yeah, we want to. Um, we want us to keep. Yeah, we want us to be happy. We want. We want all of us to be healthy as much as possible. Yeah. So indeed. yeah. So I think that's just one thing that I just want to make sure is in each of our minds. Yeah. You know, this is, we're in one day now. Who knows what's going to happen in six months' time? Quite. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Right. I feel like. Sure. Then I have one, and anyone else want to say anything about? But I would just urge everyone to watch um, Dr. Cornell West uh, speaking to Anderson Cooper on um, CNN. It's on Twitter. It's all over Twitter. It's absolutely amazing. To you know, I think we really need our elders at the moment. And we always do anyway, but especially at the moment, you know, we have people like Cornel West, Paul Gilroy, you know, people who, Dr. Maxine Walters, even, you know, people who have lived through a lot and seen a lot and consistently done their duties, done their work all mm-hmm. through that and have just the best insight and they're just so eloquent and mm-hmm. just really sort of like, tear it apart at the seams in just the most in the clearest way um so yeah i would say watch that and also killer mike's brilliant speech today um that was also broadcast on cnn they and they just let him speak for like eight minutes Mm -hmm. and you know he's like you know we have orators among us who are you know MLK standard. <laughs> like, honestly, they are that level. Like, Killer Mike, I was just sort of, I was, 
amazed. I was agog. I was just like, wow, this is this this is the truth. Yeah. And he's not even skip he's not skipping a word, he's not pausing at all yeah. for any kind of hesitation. Like he's on it. And you know, we just have to take heart from the fact that there are people like that around us who are fighting our corner and that you know, people who are there to to listen to and to um to make sense of it all. If, yeah. Um, if we in any way can't. Yeah. Um, I guess one last thing I would say is that kind of anyone who does hear this, obviously, like if you've been, unless you've been living under a rock, you'll know what's going on. You'll be able to see it. I think it's important that we educate ourselves. Um, I did um, on our Black Boy Joy um, Twitter, uh, we posted thread about this kind of like what you can do educate yourself if you have any money you can donate to um families of victims or to a charity to the relief fund i think they're the minnesota um relief fund that's there to help uh people who've been incarcerated because of protesting things like that uh they mm. should do it i think that um everybody should take responsibility where possible where they can to when they see in- instances of racial and mentioned injustice to speak it out, to to weed it out and to root it out. And that's especially, especially white people. Um, there are white people who listen to Black Boy Joy. There are white people who will read your work, Paul. And I encourage it, you know, if you like what we do, if you like us, if you love us, then that's great. But being here for us is how you show, is how you show that you really care. And yeah. being here and being present and, doing this, and being in those spaces and calling out racism when we can't is, it's, mm. it's for them to do so I implore every mm. person white people in particular to do that whenever they can mm. absolutely agree of Black Boy Joy. You're joined here with me, Ainsley. I'm by myself, Kieran. Yes, we're joined on another glorious Saturday afternoon. Mm -hmm. None of that is important because we have a very, very special guest with us. (laughs) Um, (laughs) of Rainbow Milk, Paul Mendes. Welcome to Black Boy Joy. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> before we get into it I just I wanted to say so we had like a pre-chat like a week before and I wanted to say then that like whatever you were doing with your skin or that skin you you need to bottle it off and you need to like shout out to the masses like, <laughs> like, like I could see the light bouncing off those cheekbones of <laughs> Stop her. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so I feel like I'm being tickled. In content creation, you know how these content creators all now are sharing their skin routine. Mm. When you're ready, and not before you're ready, make sure you. um, (laughs) Well, I went through like a really bad skin phase like a couple of months ago, three months ago. I suppose like when I was like doing the editing of my novel, like the very last bit, and I was really stressed and I was sort of in the first year of my MA and doing all mm-hmm. of that. And I had really no time. Um, so I had terrible like sort of acne on my forehead. So it mm-hmm. sounded absolutely disgusting. Um, but I did 
get a couple of products that um, a friend of mine um, recommended to me, these sort of um, pads, so yeah. like morning and night sort of cleansing. Um, and then this sort of face wash that I use when I'm in the shower. And yeah, just simple like moisturizing as I've always done. But mm-hmm. um, I think dietary changes as well a little bit. And yeah. a bit more right. exercise. So I stopped eating as much cheese as I was eating. And I've, I basically, I don't eat much dairy anymore. Yeah. Um, which um, people of African descent are not as able, apparently. So people tell me uh, to digest lactose as mm. people from other ethnicities. So um, yeah, I've stopped taking, I don't drink milk very much. I only really have butter when I have cake and I eat a lot of cake actually so that's probably yeah. the object um, but I was eating a lot of cheese so giving that up I think has made a lot of difference yeah. and I'm a, I'm a vegetarian as well anyway so okay oh which helps yeah. it helps the results are here so, yeah. <laughs> meat, meat juices do not do you any favours I don't think and I know it's hard but <laughs> <laughs> oh, unfortunately I am in the middle of a particularly bad skin phase myself. Well, your skin looks fantastic from where I'm sitting. It, it looked fantastic. Red, reddish glow. It looks like fantastic because I'm in shadow. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> I was uh, at work oh, yesterday and I saw one of my work aunties for the first time in like oh, well over a month. And like I was saying hello, we did like our, our like shoulder bump because we can't talk to each other. And after you said about the first thing she says to me is like, oh, you know, like you really should put some lemon on those spots you've got on your face. <laughs> Literally, the very last thing that she said. Ouch. Wow. I'm guessing, I'm guessing you have that kind of relationship where you can just oh, be, sure, or, yeah. or she can be open with you, I guess, like not the other way around, maybe not. Really. I was just thinking that. It's probably because she absolutely loves you that she knows she can get away with that. Um, <laughs> when it comes to like black women, especially black women of a certain age, I just expect it. Like it's a sign. It's a sign that they love you and miss you. So I just take it. (laughs) Just just looking out for you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like going home from like being away for a long time, back to to my grandmother's house, and like you know the first thing she says to you, "Oh, so you look fat." Yeah. (laughs) 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 You must be eating, man. There's no way you can go back to like a Caribbean household, especially like an older Caribbean household, without there being some comments on your way. Either mm. you have gone and you put on waist, or they think you've gone too skinny, like boy, you look marvelous. Mm. Sick, yeah. exactly. It's, a fear. it's never exactly. like, oh, you look well. It's, yeah. I quite like, it's, it's, like our, it's like our version of small talk, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it is. how the kids and what we've been up to. It's just like, they just tell you how much you weigh or whether you look fatter or thinner. Exactly. I love it. <laughs> yes, don't ever let them change. Like, you know, just no, for sure. never any other way. <laughs> Gosh, so, yeah, so I guess if, um, one thing I'd like to ask about how have these last six months been since you've, um, you've written Rainbow Milk, you've been released to acclaim, you've mentioned doing an MA, like how has all that been for you? Um, a joy, mm-hmm. actually, I have to say. Um, it's not been easy, and I've had some sort of personal challenges during that time, 
Um, my grandmother passed away in October, so I was um, in the Midlands a lot. And that was sort of really during the first weeks of Miami when I'm supposed to be sort of settling in and mm-hmm. focusing on that. And, um, you know, we were very close. So it was a very, very difficult time. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I published a book which I was able to um, dedicate in part to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I w- was able to publish it on her on what would have been her 90th birthday. Oh, man. So that was a further tribute to her. And um, like you said, it's been published to acclaim, which I'm <laughs> sort of shocked by in a way, um, because it's, it's not what I did it for. If yeah. that makes sense, you know, obviously you'd like mm-hmm. people to, to, to appreciate your work, but for me, I've just always written. So it was just always something that I would do. And mm-hmm. I was just, you know, very glad to, to find my publisher, Charmaine Lovegrove, um, and to, to, to publish a book. So, but I didn't expect the, the attention from the observer and the guardian and various other publications. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't expect Bernadine Evaristo to, um, to highlight it and to sort of champion it. Um, Marlon James, you know, people who I absolutely adore and respect and love. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so there's been aspects of it that have, you know, been unfortunate, obviously because of the lockdown, um, not being able to have a physical book launch, not being able to go to a bookshop and see my book on display, which are two things that you really, really hold on to before publication. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't complain at all because I've, I think had one of the best starts to a debut campaign that I know of. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a lot of that's down to my publisher, to my publicist, um, and to, you know, the you know, feeling lucky that I've got the time and space to do it. Yeah. So, um, all, all good. Congratulations. Like, uh, yeah. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Could you, um, for the listeners, could you give us, anyone who's not familiar with it, could you give us, um, like a summary of what the book's about and what it deals with, in your opinion? Uh, sure. Um, it's uh, ostensibly a coming-of-age story um, featuring uh, a young black queer man from the West Midlands um, who grows up in a Jehovah's Witness household. Um, his mother marries a white Jehovah's Witness when he's four years old, um, so he's raised by a white father, but he's fully black. And his mother and adoptive father have three other mixed race children. And so he always feels like um, the child that his mother didn't love or the child who reminds his mother of her life before she found God. Um, Mm. It's sort of an abusive relationship that they have. Um, But he is disfellowshipped from the community of Jehovah's Witnesses Mm. when they realize that he is gay. Um, and he runs away to London with only a little bit of money, um, leaving his Bible on his bed, sort of changing his phone number, um, and really sort of throws himself into um, his repressed sexuality and sort of, um, yeah, just discovering himself that way um, to the point that he decides to become a sex worker. Um, And we just sort of see him sort of do all the things that we would absolutely try to stop him from doing if we could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're lucky that he survives and 
sort of comes to a place in his life where he can find love. Um, but we sort of um, anchor his story in that of um, someone from the Windrush generation. Um, so Norman, who moves uh, from Jamaica to the UK, to the black country in the West Midlands um, in 1956, and immediately starts to uh, realise that the, um, the colonial image that London, uh, that, uh, that England portrays itself as through the work of Jane Austen, mm -hmm. uh, etc., is not the reality of the England that he moves to, where he mm. experiences racism, where he experiences poverty, um, ill health, um, and you know he's left unable to work, raising his two children while his wife goes out to work to support the family, and sort of wondering what kind of world he's bringing his children up in, and what the legacy of his his family will be, which we see later on is is Jesse. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> One of the first things about Rainbow Milk I I got when I started reading it is that is the kind of um, the first bit, the first like sort of chapter of the work, the first 50 pages with Norman. And obviously, um, mm -hmm. going into reading it, I was going to be hearing, like I said, it was about a coming of age story, it was about a black queer man, it was about um, like him growing up and then moving to London. And then suddenly, like, I'm reading, I'm reading these bits about like a man who's traveling from the West Indies to the UK again which I was not expecting at all. But actually, mm. like, when I got into it, the novel could have been just about him itself, because, mm. like, those bits were, like, just so heartfelt and, like, just so tender. And, like, reading that experience of, like, it's a, the way that I read it is that he was a big man. He was, like, a big, austere man. If, like, he'd been walking down the road, I'd imagine people, like, people who didn't know him might have been afraid of him because of just how, how big he was. But actually, he was really tender. He read books. He fiercely loved his wife and his children. And, yeah, so I just thought that was, yeah, like, that particular part of the beginning of it was amazing just because I was unexpected, was unexpected to go with something a bit different when I caught it. But it mm. started, it, it started, like, quite tender. Mm. And I gave a story that I gave kind of like a backdrop to our main character Jesse that we've mm. gotten. Absolutely. I, I felt similar because um, I liked Norman's story and Claudette and everyone. Um, and so we get that in the first section of the book. And after that, when we hear about Jesse, who's a main character, I kept thinking at some point they're gonna, this is going to relate back to Norman's family. I'm like, when are we going to find out? We're going to find out. And it reminds me of. of um, Small Islands by Andrew Levy, um, which, you, which, you, which you mentioned in the book as well. Um, and I kept thinking, it's like a spin-off novel where we find out about Norman and Claude and more details. <laughs> I, I enjoyed their story a lot. I think my favourite part, just from uh, relating to our, our personal experience, would have been the beginning, um, where the family moves from Jamaica to England. And also, um, sort of Jesse's life before he leaves home, Mm -hmm. It was strange because of aspects of it I could kind of relate to and aspects of it that were completely new to me. I didn't really know much about Jehovah's Witness world or anything, but it was, um, it's, it's nice reading something that happened, well, that takes place like down the road from where you grew up. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's not often, yeah. Strange. Yeah. I loved it. Um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like that bit, that was really strange. That obviously like the context of the novel, like where it's set, when it's set. Um, it was a few years before, like, mine and Kevin's time, but, like, it goes into our time. And so that, mm. like, you were, you were speaking about areas that, like, I've walked down before. 
and like you were talking about things that places that I've been to, I've seen. So um, West Bromwich, for instance, is about 15 minutes drive from my parents' home in Oldbury. Oh right, okay. Yeah, mm. so I know Oldbury very well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say exactly where it is because people are listening. <laughs> um, you know, the big saver centre. Yeah, where I used to shop when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we Sometimes. live like really close to there. Like, um, wow, okay. A 15, 20 minute walk from there. Okay. I used to work at that same place actually, like really? way back when, yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, there were two things that stood out to me that I wondered how you approached them. Um, the first was. So the, the opening part is narrated by Norman as in Patwa. And just from a technical point of view, how did you manage to, or how difficult was it to get the dialect down in a way that was sort of faithful to how it's spoken, how it's pronounced, and also have it in such a way that someone who's not acquainted with Patwa will be able to understand it on the page? Was that difficult or was it quite straightforward? Or um, It took a few attempts and it took a bit of editing. So I didn't even plan for it. First of all, mm-hmm. um, I I didn't I can't remember exactly why I started writing in that sort of uh, voice, but I was at the British Library one day looking at a book about Jamaican flora and different types of plants and trees that would have been in Jamaica sort of in the nineteen fifties and and before, mm-hmm. um, and I guess because of the Windrush scandal sort of by then this is sort of the early spring of 2018 by then it would really sort of we knew what was going on mm-hmm. the story broke in December 2017 so this is a couple of months later we knew what was going on and I guess I was sort of outraged as much as anyone any one of us might have been mm. um, and I guess my family um, both sides of my family come from Jamaica and both sides came in the 1950s late 1950s but they've always been very circumspect about um, their past and what their life was like, whether they've just forgotten, I don't know, mm-hmm. um, or whether they just didn't want to tell me. Because there's something to be said for, you know, moving to a different country to raise your children so that they can go to school in England, they can speak English, so that they can have better opportunities. That's sort of what mm-hmm. they originally did, and that's the sort of script that they always stuck to. But, like, I was always interested in, in who they were mm-hmm. and, you know, where they came from and why did they choose to come to the black country, Mm -hmm. you know, which is, you know, just an industrial area, you know, I mean, it's wonderful. I miss it and I love it, but it's an industrial part of the world. Like, why would you move from paradise to, to Mm -hmm. go there? Yeah. But I could just never sort of get like an answer out of them. And I, you know, my grandmother, like I said, died last year. I didn't know anything about her life before she came to England. Mm -hmm. it was her sister my auntie rose my great auntie rose who um when i um asked her this was for the eulogy that i um, delivered at my grandmother's funeral i asked my auntie rose what was nan like before um she came to england and she was a sunday school teacher and she played piano and sang yeah and all of these things that i had absolutely no idea about at all my grandmother never went to church she always watched song of, songs of praise on a Sunday. She couldn't sing. I know. <laughs> you know it was terrible. <laughs> so I had just no idea. No idea at all that she was musical, that she could play piano, that she could sing, that she taught Sunday school, that she used to cycle around St. Elizabeth, like, you know, helping people and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I didn't know that before I was born, she used to work in a screw-making factory in Dudley. Um, and she's always sort of had really beautiful nails, always taking really good care of her nails. So I'm like, wow, like I can't actually imagine my grandmother with her nails sort of standing at a lathe mm-hmm. with all the swarm sort of um, going under her nails and stuff. Like, I mean, that's insane. Um, but they just would never talk about these things. So for me, it was really important to start engaging with the voice of someone who uh, came to the UK in the 50s. I do believe that fiction has the power to enter into spaces that facts have, um, have, have not been laid down for. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we have like one or two sketchy facts about someone as an individual. In- indeed, Norman is based on my paternal grandfather who, uh, like Norman, came to the UK uh, in 1956 and soon after started to complain of migraine headaches and blurred vision just from those sort of few facts I was able to enter into a dialogue with Norman mm-hmm. and I just after this day at the British Library I went home and sat in my room um, and I just basically recorded myself giving Norman's narrative like as you read it Indeed, the sort of the last section of his where he's sitting watching TV with um, with Robert and Glory uh, and yeah. Cliff Richards on singing uh, Living Doll. That was mm. the first thing that I said. And mm. I recorded myself uh, and it was sort of about 15 minutes and then transcribed the whole thing and edited it. And it was in rich Jamaican parts where that would have been quite difficult for people to read. Mm-hmm. So um, after my publisher read it, who was Jamaican herself, um, she said, look, not everyone's going to be able to understand this and it's too important to to lose or risk anyone sort of skipping it. Yeah. Um, so you'll have to dilute it to a point that it's still um, recognisably patois and isn't sort of dumbing him down, yeah. um, but that uh, is easy to understand. And so uh, hopefully, eventually, I've sort of reached a voice that is that has both verisimilitude very, very and accessibility. Yeah. I think that's fascinating, personally. but. Um... I mean, I've done some acting as well, so it wasn't wasn't so hard for me to, um, you know, I've played Othello, and that was a a big reach, you know, I'm not a big man, you know, I'm five foot eight, I'm quite small, Um, you know, I'm quite gay, (laughs) 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 so it it wasn't super easy for me to sort of play this, like, you know, heterosexual, like, African general. Yeah, um, but you know what you're taught to do is to try to um, inhabit the space that that person mm. inhabit, mm-hmm. and you know Norman being blind. You know, I blindfolded myself and walked around the house. Oh, really? So you really and, getting into the character? Yeah, it's, well, like, me- it's like method writing, isn't it? Yeah, like exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and this is the thing about writing, you can take from everywhere, you can take from acting, you can take from drama, you can take from music, you can take from all kinds of um, artistic disciplines and you can make them work, the processes you can make them work for writing. You know, I needed to use absolutely everything that was available to me to create Rainbow Milk and yeah. to to tell that story. Um, but yeah, I lived with, I was living with a family in Brixton at the time um, who had a small child and the house was sort of messy in, in the way that you know family houses are 
but I blindfolded myself and walked around like quite narrow staircases, etc., just so that I could have some empathy with mm-hmm. um, with Norman and you know him being sort of six foot something, six foot four, having these tiny kids mm-hmm. running around. He's blind, you know, he mm-hmm. can't see like Glory. Like he could step on her and kill her. Mm-hmm. In fact, I did read about um, there was a pub uh, in Swan Village near where I grew up that got sort of demolished. I think in about. 2003 um but in the history uh of of the pub that was written i can't remember who by um one of the previous landlords there were rooms above the pub back in the day and um, one of the previous landlords um had rolled over and crushed his child oh god uh while sleeping and that sort of made me realize you know what someone like norman would have had to deal with being such a big man um, having such small children around and this sort of complete um, well, disability mm-hmm. um, with blindness that has come on since he's moved to this um, foreign and um, unknown land. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these ideas um, and processes filtered into his monologue. Okay. Ooh. Um, I was gonna, I was gonna say um, the really interesting bit actually about when you talked about that like, your grandparents and like um, what I think you said that your paternal grandfather was based on Norman, and I think yeah because I know for me because we are born like I'm born in the UK and kind of when I'm born like my grandparents are always around and they obviously had like such rich such a wealth of experiences. That like you don't think of it that way. Like I never really thought of any of my grandparents as being oh they had to had to come from a completely different life to come here and have your parents who then had you. Mm. So I rarely asked. I don't think one of my grandmothers who has passed as well. Sorry. Or I asked. Um, yeah, I asked her maybe like once or twice what it was like, and she was yeah she was very vague, very sketchy about kind of like her experiences as well. But really, I kind of like just left it there because it's just like you do. Um, as selfish as it is, I kind of just like you, you don't really think of them as existing before you were around, but obviously that like, they did. And I think one of the best things about that is that like you get a bit of a, a bit of an insight into what that would have been like to uh, take yourself away from this whole this whole um, country, this land that you were born in, this like this um, area to come to just a complete world away and start from scratch. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. we all have to start from scratch in, in that sense um, in terms of retrieving those stories because, like, as you say, like, we, they don't want to tell us. And it could be for any reason. It could be for, you know, a trauma. Um, it could be, you know, because obviously they lived through um, Oswald Mosley and, mm-hmm. you know, the fascism of the 50s and yeah. then Enoch Powell oh, and that yeah. whole ideology you know, things are difficult. And now, so, you know, I was born in 82. So, you know, my grandparents are like, well, let's not worry him about all of that. And it's an education thing. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be left to any of us as individuals to have to plumb into the research to that level. You know, black history is mm-hmm. history, full stop. And it should be taught in schools. But I didn't know anything about the Windrush. I didn't know anything about Jamaican immigration until I read Small Island when I was 30. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and then I was furious because I felt like it had been kept from me yeah um and you know it's, it's it was bad for my mental health it was bad for my relationship with 
um, with non-black people, first of all, because I'm kind of thinking, well, I spent my whole childhood learning about you. Yeah. What about me? What about my yeah. family? Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's really hard. Like, I don't know if you've been through that same thing at any one particular point, but I really do feel like, and it came so late in my life as well. You just, it was just humiliating. Yeah. You know, I was kind of thinking, what, what was I behaving like before? You know, how, what did I think I knew before yeah. about life? You know, how stupid must I have looked? How ignorant must I have looked? Mm-hmm. I feel the same. I know a lot in our generation will feel similar. Because um, when I think back to school, I dropped history after, I think it was year nine. Me too. I think part of it was just because I, I, I liked more frivolous subjects anyway. And also, yeah. the history we had done, um, it just wasn't particularly to my fancy. Mm. It's, at primary school, we'd done like all the Tudor kings and queens. And then in secondary school, we'd done the Industrial Revolution, which was, oh my God, so boring. And mm. then World War II and the Holocaust and stuff. I think there was a brief look at slavery. Mm. Um, I, but, do, I do think I got that. It's like it's very like a, I don't know. I think the slavery chapter was it was. I would say it was a good introduction. It was a chapter. But there's so much. Chapter, it was a chapter in. It mm. was a chapter in like a lesson, and it wasn't. Like, yeah. It wasn't about like it was for me anyway. Sorry to interrupt you. It was taught in a very matter of fact way. So it was kind of like, oh, there was a transatlantic slave trade, mm. and um, and yeah, uh, these people were taken from a country to another one. And they were there to work, but there was any there wasn't anything about kind of like a historical context in it or like a humanitarian context to it. it kind of like yeah. this happened at this point. Now let's mm. move on to something else, kind of. And obviously they'll make sure that the abolishment was, you know, highlighted. Oh, yeah, by of course, it, obviously. Yeah. But um for yeah. what I've tried to find out since growing up and just being um curious is just like um colonialism in general. Mm. And it's not from a with colonial, colonial, oh God, colonialism, it's not a sense of being wrong that drew me to it. It's just a, a fact of it's just had such a massive impact on everything. Mm-hmm. I just need yeah. to know what happened because it's mm-hmm. it comes up a lot in you know in um in different subjects just because of the effects of history essentially, yeah. which you can't get away from. Mm-hmm. Um, and all that stuff, I think I would be more interested in history if we'd done that. But at mm-hmm. school, it was. I don't know. I have a similar argument with things that we study in English literature, which I feel like um, mm. you probably appreciate when you're a bit older, not when you're 14, 15, 16. But mm. it's a separate discussion, I guess. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was, again, like, I, I don't remember learning anything about slavery or the um, tran- uh, transatlantic slave trade. And if it had been brought up in class, like, I went to school with uh, of majority white kids, Mm-hmm. majority white working class kids in West Bromwich and um, it just would have been an absolute nightmare to talk about any sort of black subject amongst that group because they yeah. just would have really just been disruptive Yeah, they would have bullied me over it you know I mean the amount of times I got called a skinny little biafran or the n-word or yeah. anything like that at school by ignorant kids Yeah, um, you know it just would have I don't know if it like you said, had been one class with, you know, half a little eye towards just, you know, saying, well, there was a transatlantic slave trade and, you know, people came to work and blah, blah, blah. Let's just leave it, leave it, leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think that would have helped at all, actually. I think you really need to go into this because yeah. it's British history. You really need to go into it properly yeah. and show young people their responsibilities with that knowledge. Yeah. And if it, if it had been taught at school... 
And if like uh, the idea of colonialism was really something that we could grapple grapple over, think critically about, then maybe that would have done a bit more to draw it like for us to think about it differently mm. now. Because obviously yeah. there's still remnants of colonialism, even mm. though um these uh, countries are independent, so to speak. Mm. And there are there are ways in which that affects the way that we live our lives, especially as um as black British people, mm. however you wanna um however you wanna identify. And it would be easier for us to um to identify it, to discuss it, and to um and to really kind of like get past any of the harmful any like all like all of it had we had we had that knowledge before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as well British colonialism. I think it's just useful for for anyone just what the British identity is today and how this nation is seen by the rest of the world. Yeah. Because it's something I was literally clueless about and I'm thinking I can't, I can't be the only person. Um, just to see where Britain's place, places in the world and how people view it. Because um, mm. when you don't know it, when you have none of that for context, it's, um, you feel even, as, as being like a third generation, third generation immigrant, you feel even more lost um, as to why you're here and how you did end up here in the first yeah. place. Yeah. Strange. And you look at sort of basic things like, you know, the number of costume dramas that export on Netflix, et cetera, all over the mm. world, you still get that, you know, Jane Austen effect where people expect that Britain is um, North Angarabi or whichever, yeah. Pride and Prejudice, yeah. and that ever every white man is Mr. Darcy, every woman is Elizabeth Bennet. And, yeah. you know, I'll never forget the scene in Small Island where Hortense... Um, She's not even in the UK yet, but she expects that she's going to be able to sit on her veranda in the summer. I mean, it's yeah. so ignorant because, like, you know, daffodils, they grow in February and March, right? But she's like, uh-huh. yeah, I'm going to be sitting on my veranda in the summer with my daffodils and my white picket fence and my white gloves and I'm going to be taking tea. And I will Having tea with the, the queen. Exactly. And I will say, I will say to my white English neighbour, good morning. And my white English neighbour will turn to me and say, good morning. And that's that's exactly what she thought that life was going to be when she got here. And god damn, it wasn't. <laughs> rude, it was rude awakening. <laughs> but that's that's you know, we're not doing ourselves any favours at all by standing still and watching all of this happen. Mm. Um but you know, hopefully now with like imprints like dialogue books, like Jacaranda books, um, like hashtag murky books. Um, you know, it's a small, small start, but just opening the publishing industry for one up to uh, voices who can contextualize um, and resurrect British voices for, that have been lost to the past, whether they've not had the skill or the intention to preserve their own voice and their own experience. It's our responsibility because enough can be known. Mm-hmm. for us to work around those facts and create fictions that show as well as truth might what people's lives were like um you know i'm doing the black british writing and they at goldsmiths and that's introduced me to lots of writers that i would never have known about mm-hmm. because you know someone like buchia machata for example who wrote so brilliantly and so importantly about the working class experience, um, immigrant experience in the 60s and 70s coming from Nigeria to the UK, about motherhood, about education, about hard work. You know, she's probably the most relevant novelist I can think of right now to talk to us. Mm -hmm. And she's not even really in print at the moment. And I'm like, 
guys like make an effort <laughs> seriously <laughs> yeah i shouldn't be having to buy this book second hand i mean i've got the first edition hardback but still <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of a flex <laughs> um could we talk about probably on the major talking what to the book is the sort of sexually explicit scenes i was interested if you if you wanted to, them to be as faithful as possible when you told them, if you wanted to shock or what your intention was. Um, but they certainly jump off the page and I, I thought that was a, <laughs> I thought that stands out. Well, thank you, I think. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to be as... I think all of my writing is quite um, bold and um, I sort of describe things as they are. Like... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, very difficult to write from a 19-year-old's perspective in a literary novel. Yeah. Mm. Because they're naturally, especially, you know, I mean, it's in third person, but it's almost first person because we're yeah. just there with them all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's very difficult because a 19-year-old, generally speaking, and I count myself as a 19-year-old in this, don't have the life experience, really, don't have the knowledge, don't have the vocabulary, don't have the cultural references to be literary. Yeah. So um, when you're writing about someone who is, after all, extremely naive and has been raised in a very sort of sheltered um, Christian community, fundamentalist Christian community, everything is like going into a sweet shop for them. And I just wanted it to be um, technicolor. I wanted it to be, I wanted it to read as if it was a children's story. Yeah. Or the one that was pornographic. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> um, like, oh God. <laughs> well, it is what it is. We oh, all have sex. Well, I think you know, no, it, felt, it felt authentic, and I think exactly. it's, it's refreshing from you know, when you read other novels and it's just very, it's all dressed. I know you mentioned the age thing, but even any age group, when it's just very literary, the way the sex scenes describe and they use very like, sort of clumsy metaphors for things. Absolutely. And we all know yeah. what they're talking about. Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. What we want to hear is, and I'm sorry if like, this needs to be edited out, but what we want to hear is, he put his dick in his ass. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what we want to hear. He put his dick in his ass. He put his dick in his mouth. Like, we know. We know we've got it. We yeah. know what it looks like. So let's just yeah. move on. Like, let's just, you know, we, it's not about feelings. Like, we're talking <clears> about <throat> someone who is starved of sexual attention and mm. um has had to suppress their sexual truth for their whole life and now they're in a space they're in a different city they're in the capital they're in a city where it's all available and they're mm. just going to go in like they're not going to go and sit in like a little sort of yeah. michelin starred restaurant and eat sort of perfect little canopy <laughs> no they're going to go to mcdonald's and eat five big macs and like seven large fries and a supersized strawberry milkshake because they're hungry and they just want what's going to fulfill and satisfy them, you know, in the short term. Mm. And I really wanted to put that across with Jesse. I just wanted him to just go out there and get what he, and just get his tongue, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and to describe it and and just, (laughs) sorry, what was that? I said just uh, get that Jesse K is not basically (laughs) Well, I just wanted him to go and get what he wanted yeah. and what he's always dreamt of. Um, and and that's the language that I found was most appropriate mm. for it. To be honest, I think that um, the, the the writing that you do in Rainbow Milk 
is like very kind of like I wouldn't say matter of fact, like uh, but it is like it's I think it's simple to read in like the best in a, in a really great way. I hope so. Um, yeah. yeah. So like I think it would do a bit of injustice to the to like the tone you've already set in set in the book if then you're gonna like, deal with like sexuality, gender sexuality, and do it in like a really convoluted way. Mm. Like, I can imagine in other like in other novels, it'd be like oh like they exchange glances at each other. And then I like, walked into a room. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't. I don't. <laughs> Which is weird because it's, it's not a romance novel at the end of the day, isn't it? And it's, exactly. Um, Certainly not. I think as as well, it for me it was faithful to sort of what well, hookup culture, if you want to call it that. Mm, um, exactly. And there were there were bits of the book I was looking at and thinking, oh, I mean, in a similar situation, and you just feel a bit hot under the collar. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How does he know? Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, there was um, there was a few scenes in it that I read, and I was like, you definitely know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I feel like I feel like a prude in comparison to Jesse. Like completely, I feel like I'm. Comparatively angelic. I was like, he had an exciting life, I thought. <laughs> well, this is the beauty of it, you know, and this is, um, this is not all black queer people. This is just one mm. person who um, has had this experience. And I think it's important to, to share it because um, this isn't a book. I'm sorry to say this, but this isn't a book just for white people, even though white people will probably form the majority audience because A, there are more white people in this country than black people, mm-hmm. and B, it's marketed as a literary novel for, you know, and almost as, as like a state of the nation novel. But I also, I don't want um, black queer people to read this book and think this is like, you know, the book about black queer life because it's just not, mm. like, yeah. you know, it's, it's yeah. very much its own story it's very much about you know two very specific people yeah um and it really just opens up a space for discussion to to, to compare to other black queer stories and to yeah. talk mm. about you know creating a canon of black queer literature in this country of which there is still you know from a british perspective there's still very little yeah, yeah. um and you know i for one want to sort of open up a dialogue with other narratives and to see you know which other amazing queer black characters we can unearth yeah actually like you've hit on a point i wanted to make about kind of like jesse the central character in the novel and kind of talking about like the black british queer experience and because i think you definitely spend a lot of time in the book kind of like contextualizing the environment that jesse lives in jesse works Mm. in and stuff like that so um that's one really great thing about it is that like i've never ever read a book by like uh about a black queer um boy from the from basically from down the road from down the road from where i'm from mm-hmm. and so so some some things felt so familiar in like the contextual stuff the music he was listening to the conversations he was having but his experiences are just so different to mine and that like it just like it hits the point that like obviously we are a community of people where um where black queer people or black queer men but each of us have our own individual story, have our own individual experiences. Exactly. Kind of like that, that tracks to who we are now. And mm. we don't really get, we don't really get to see that so often because like, we don't see, we don't really, we don't, our characters aren't really out there. Mm. <clears throat> exactly. Well, I mean, there are, there are a lot of us uh, who all have, all have our different stories. 
Mm-hmm. We just have to hope that uh, the publishing industry and um, wherever, wherever, wherever else where um, black queer creatives might um, channel uh, their work, yeah. um, that they find a, re- a receptive uh, gatekeeper mm-hmm. um, and people in, in the industries who are willing to accept those um, individual stories. Uh, and not just turn around and say, oh, we've, we've already got rainbow milk, so... Yeah, I think we don't need... Um, yeah, I think that's that a danger. Causes. That's a danger, yeah. yeah. With, like, minority communities, I think, oh, one, one story is enough for the, you know, to represent yeah. everyone. Yeah, um, I mean, when I started out, yeah. sort of five or six years ago, maybe slightly longer, um, you know, it sort of came to be known, I suppose, that I was writing, um, what it is, because rainbow milk started as a memoir, mm-hmm. uh, just about, sort of, uh, myself stroke Jesse, um, and you know I was told one once that you know if you're writing a misery memoir then it's not miserable enough, and then someone else said um, we've already got um, is it what's her name Candice Bushnell no let me just who wrote ugly not Candice Bushnell no oh I know you talk Constance 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 Briscoe. That's the one, yeah. Um, yeah, we've already got ugly, so you know we don't need another. And I, I don't know when ugly was published, but it, you know it's a long time before I was thinking about doing anything. Um, so for someone to say, "Oh, we've got a black sort of you know sob story," which already. is which is mad because I haven't read that, but I know about her, and mm. it's a completely different story. So the fact that they would say, "Oh, it is already covered," it's just mad to me. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was published in 2006, which is probably sort of five years before I was looking to sort of get published for the first time. Yeah. Uh, which is, that's a long, I mean, if you're going to say, fine, it's wrong. But if, they, if they're going to say, like, these are two very similar books, there's five mm-hmm. years different. Yeah. So, you know, what yeah. are you talking about? Um, and, you know, I just don't want to see that happen again. But um, we do have people in the industry now who I hope will just not let that happen. Yeah won't let uh, stories fall by the wayside because they are deemed to be too similar in, in identity to another yeah. story, not taking into account. Um, and that's sort of another reason why the Norman aspect of the story was so important to Rainbow to sort of anchor it within the Windrush generation. Yeah. Um, because it just shows to people who might doubt that there is some history to it. Mm-hmm. You know, some people in literature want to see that there's history involved, that there's rigor, that there's all of these things. Yeah. Um, and that it's not just about sort of someone sort of complaining about their lot now, which, yeah. you know, we all have problems. So, you know, why should we care about yours? Which is yeah. the thing that's been said to me. Someone said that to you? Mm. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, God, and... yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine what I would have said to him if he said that. <laughs> I thought about sort of like writing his name in the dedication because he did sort of help me out at the beginning, but like, uh-uh. Nah. Yeah. What, did, uh, you also destroyed my confidence. Um, there's a line from Tiana Taylor mm. in um, A World in Harlem, which is like, I ain't calling no names out, no free promotion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's <laughs> anything you think that guy. <laughs> 
Speaking well, of which, what, I loved um, I loved all the music references. In I the was book. literally um, waiting for the background. Yeah, <laughs> because, <laughs> it's interesting because quite a few of them I knew. Because you mentioned a lot of songs and a lot of um, a lot of novels as well. And it's interesting because some that I'd come across like hundred percent read it, and some that I think, oh, I must I must listen to that or I must read that at some point. Mm. Um, but I think oh, there's one uh, from a, oh, a Sugar Babes or Adina Howard. And I saw the lyrics, I was just like, oh, there we are. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and like... <laughs> for me, when all of the musical references were like in each book, is when I was getting my life because so to see like these books, sorry, these um, these albums, these songs, these artists being referenced. Like even reference hanging on a string by loose end, which literally, which is a classic. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> so actually, so before this um, coronavirus hit, I'd bought tickets for me and my parents to come to London to see loose end. No way. Yeah. So I'm basically like mainly in part due to that song. Ah, uh, it's so, so good, isn't it? Amazing. Like, yeah. Like like loose end, kind of like soul. Um, R&B kind of like especially from like the early 90s kind of going onwards is like what I was raised on basically yeah so yeah so to see that yeah see all of like all of those um, all of those songs like have, and like, I feel like it was so intrinsic to his character as well which is just so true of all of us so true with our experiences just really mm. was making me like it was putting a smile on my face well it's uh, a, you know it's quite a radical thing to do really I think to include pop music in a literary novel again, because you know you suspect a literary novelist is supposed to be a particular thing that deals with particular mm. like really big subjects and in you know a really sort of like important white man kind of way. Um, and so for a long time, I didn't know whether I was allowed to have pop references in my book. But to be honest, like very much like you, Ainsley, I was raised on soul music. Yeah. Uh, in the 80s and 90s that was the only access i had to the world outside jehovah's witnesses yeah that that was those those were my points of reference those were yeah. where i saw other black people mm-hmm. um in music videos etc um my mum was always playing albums always taping songs off the radio um playing vinyl my dad had his vinyl from the 70s like you know funkadelic earthland and fire mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff that was that those that was my childhood vocabulary. It, it, it was all music. Yeah. And when I left home, that music was my way to sort of, um, I don't know, just existing in the world, you know, mm-hmm. outside the community of Jehovah's Witnesses. That was mm-hmm. the, the first sort of cloud that I fell back on. Yeah. Um, and, but then I sort of, I didn't allow myself to use music references until I read Ordinary People by Diana Evans. Mm-hmm. Have you read? I don't know if you've read that. I've never read it, no. Uh, absolutely mandatory read, I think. Um, it's based on, it's sort of a concept novel based on John Legend's album, Get Lifted, oh, really? which is itself okay. um, a concept album about um, a relationship from, you know, the first sort of sight of each other to, you know, through breakup to reconciliation, etc. Um, and she writes about two um, interracial uh, families, young families with um, small children, through this lens. 
and throughout you've got scattered so many references to late 90s early 2000s r&b and it was just so amazing for me to read because like it's so anchoring to see those mm. songs because like immediately you you know what those songs are like and you can hear them in your head and you can hear the intention mm. that the author is putting across by using that song to illustrate a certain point yeah so for me it just really sort of it was um a eureka moment but you know especially in the scene with rufus which is so strange which is jesse losing his virginity yeah um you get this soundtrack happening in the background mm-hmm. um which is all 80s soul sung by black women and each song has a special memory attached to it for him yeah, yeah. so it became a really sort of like economic way, economical way of storytelling. Yeah. That the song would um, unleash the memory, but also be attached now to this new experience that he's having for the first time in his life of having sex with a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm really glad that that sort of came across to you as readers um, and hope that like, it can inspire people yeah. uh, to, to use whatever is available to them, whatever um, influences them, whatever inspires them in their work and not just feel that a novel just has to be sort of high culture yeah mm-hmm. so to actually speak. so really interestingly um there is a scene with like a pretty important character to uh to jesse and in it um they are um discussing they're like talking while mary j obliges um i can't remember what it's like my life album my life yeah yeah and while that was on i actually thought to put on I'm going down from that album on the story. <laughs> and then I stick to a page and you don't say the name of the song, but you say that like um, strings are playing and a woman's like, and she's lamenting about a, about a lover that's not there. And she was like, mm-hmm. mostly talk about this song while, like, while I'm reading yeah. it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> 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 I was tending to get the track list up when I was reading through that part of the book as well. Well, <laughs> do you know what? In like the next... Um... But there, there is a Spotify playlist called Rainbow Milk where I've collected every song in order. Oh, there is one. There is one. You yeah. have to share it. You have to share it. <laughs> <laughs> well, until I think it's, is it in my Twitter bio? Um, it was until today, I think. Hold on. Um, No, it's not, but I will share it. Okay, I'll share it. You should one point. Um, But I think the next print of the book will have, like, you know, a note to tell everyone to search for the Spotify playlist. Because I I do think, like, I think sometimes a lot, a book can be a lot to take in, especially if it's something that's very unfamiliar and dealing with very unfamiliar subjects. Yeah. Um, And sometimes it's nice to have, um, sometimes, you know, if I'm studying a book and, and there's a film made of the book, I'll watch the film first because yeah. it just sort of takes away. So I did that with Beloved. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't a- ever able to get past page 100 of Beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an absolutely amazing book. I love the tone, but like for me, I didn't know it was just so difficult. I, there was just so much going on in every yeah. line and I just couldn't do it. So I, I always ended up putting it down. Um, but then I watched the film and then picked the back the book back up started from the beginning and it was a much easier read and I was able to I wasn't able to do so much work in terms of the visual aspect of it because I knew what Sethi looked like I knew what yeah. Beloved looked like or I at least could sort of hold them as counterparts for what the Beloved uh, Beloved looked like in my mind because obviously uh, Beloved in the film is played by Tandy Newton and Beloved in the book is supposed to be much darker skinned 
which yeah. is another subject. But typical, still, there we are. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's not happening. If Rainbow Rock ever goes to a TV or film, that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> People are supposed to be dark skinned are staying dark skinned. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. Energy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it just sort of made it easier to 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 decode the rest of what the book was doing. Mm-hmm. So. I think if people have like access to the soundtrack before they actually read the book, um, I mean, a lot of people have written to me and said like I didn't understand any of the music references, didn't know who they were, but like thank you for sort of adding a few like descriptions at times, like of I am going down by Mary J. Blige, for example, as you say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it would be nice for people to sort of listen to it first and then read the book. Mm-hmm. All the references from um, in the scene we were talking about before uh, was like, punk rock mentioned. Yeah. Um, all that is new to me, completely new. So I'll be right. I think I recognise some of the song titles, but didn't. I couldn't think of actually heard the song before. So right. Okay. So hopefully I can find on the playlist and uh, have a listen. It's very it different. Me some new new sound world. <laughs> yeah. Good. I hope so. Um, but you know, again, I'm sort of writing about um, sort of the music of my childhood, or you know, my parents didn't introduce me to that music. Yeah. But when I did hear that music for the first time, I heard in the um, the production effects, um, the founders and the factories that were local to my area. You know, I heard scaffolding poles on beds on trucks. I heard, you know, that that sort of beautiful echoing reverby sound of like a tool being dropped on the floor in mm. a very sort of high ceilinged uh, warehouse, um, and that for me it's just so evocative and it still is even to this day like you know over 14 years now since i first heard that music yeah so for me it's just very very anchoring and everyone's going to have their different experiences and when people sort of talk about beyonce and solange for example yeah uh, obviously coming from texas where um you know a lot of the music of their childhood would be country yeah Mm. wouldn't necessarily be soul and r&b that's probably what we'd be playing in the house but like if they're you know driving past their sort of town hall in, in, in city city hall in houston mm-hmm. they might be hearing something else coming from another car something by dolly mm-hmm. Parton or by kenny rogers or something mm-hmm. and that's just as um legitimately part of their story and of their childhood as the black music that their parents were listening to yeah for sure. so the, what i wanted to say with um that section was um we all can claim every aspect of british culture of British history, it's part of all of us, you know, just because mm-hmm. we are from one community and from one background doesn't mean that we aren't also inspired by and um, triggered by and don't experience nostalgia from something that we weren't expected to have been part of. Yeah. Mm. Um, to, bring, sorry to bring you back to um, Beyonce and Solange. <laughs> I'm always happy to talk about Beyonce and Solange. <laughs> <laughs> I, for one, I'm so happy you mentioned those two powerhouse albums. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, when you mentioned Lemonade in it, like, about halfway through the novel, I was like, I'm hoping I think the table will get in here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted to write about When I Get Home. Um, oh, but that is, that is a divisive album between me and... We, yeah, we've had the proper journey with that album, haven't we? So like, who's, um, who likes it and who doesn't? I, you know, actually, interestingly, so... We so if we, Ames, we give the full stories. Um, me and Ainsley, with uh, two other friends at the time, when it first came out, all four of us listened at the same time, and 
for me, first few listens, I thought, oh my God, Solange, what you done? Um, I thought there was too much, I, I thought it was under-edited. I thought she should have stood it as a mixtape or an EP and had it much shorter. Um, and it, it grew on me, I think. I still think there's some excess on it. I think AMD likes it a bit more than I do. But, um, mm-hmm. uh, what's your opinion? You like okay, good. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm a Solange stan. Yeah, me too. When um when when I get home came out, I won't lie, I was a bit surprised that that was kind of like the sound that she was going for. But I think after I think the table came out, we were just expecting it to sound a bit more like that since the sound was so hugely successful for her. Mm. It hit on all the points that like we really needed at the time we needed them. Mm. So I was very surprised to hear it when I get home. Just in the way it is, it's a lot more fragmented than the table. The, um, the themes that you're trying to talk about don't just jump out straight out at you as they do with the other one. But honestly, you just need to get into the music, get into like each bit, like each from the production to the lyrics, everything, really tell its own story. Mm. And I think you just need to actually give it time and appreciate it for what it is rather than like try and make direct comparisons of it. Exactly, exactly. I felt exactly the same. Um, it took me a couple of listens as well. And like, I think probably like both of you, like the minute I woke up that morning and saw that it had been surprise released, yeah. immediately downloaded it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Planned my day around listening to it on repeat. So I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to do the ironing. So I just like, <laughs> so like plug my earphones in, like ironing, listening to when I get home and think very much like you thinking, what the hell? Like, this is really arrogant. Like, you yeah, know, why is she yeah. giving us like, one minute clips of songs like you know and before you know it then you know it's 19 tracks i'm like 19 tracks yes <laughs> excited and then but it's it's done in like 32 minutes or whatever mm. i'm like that's what really what threw me off as well like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and so it took me a couple of listens as well but then i kind of thought this is Solange. put the iron down go and sit in a darkened room and just give yeah. all your full attention Mm. And I'm glad I did that. And it's become absolutely one of the albums of my life. Yeah. It was, it was obviously released on the 1st of March. And then um, on the 3rd, I flew to New York for the first time with my partner. We were um, uh, just uh, going to spend a couple of days in New York and then go to Boston, um, attend a friend's concert and then um, come back. Um but like being in New York and listening to when I get home and just, you know, for the first time and that just being part of my life then. Yeah. And that was when I also, um, on the 4th of March, I handed in Rainbow Milk. Oh, so for okay. me, like, yeah. it's just so sort of caught up within that yeah. moment and with those like amazing things happening to me for the first time. And, and whenever I listen to it, I still sort of feel like that. Yeah. And that's again, the importance of music and how, anchoring it is how it how it how for me at least it just attaches itself to emotions mm-hmm. in a way that other senses don't and other sense um stimulators don't um yeah. perhaps smells sometimes yeah mm-hmm. but music for me is the most reliable way of capturing uh, a moment so i really wanted to have like a final section like i mentioned earlier going to the midlands uh last spring and having a walk around all of my childhood Endrons, and I was listening sort of alternately to uh, Michelle Obama's audio audiobook, mm-hmm. um, and when I get home, and it was just sort of completely re- reprogramming my my childhood areas and sort of make, giving them a 2019 sense where they hadn't really had a sense of anything since about sort of 2000 when I left. Um, 
and I really wanted to have a section set in 2019, but mm-hmm. I couldn't mm-hmm. because I ran out of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know that me and Kevin have, I can't say mech Solange. I want to say we that. Yeah, we <laughs> <laughs> so was it the first or the first time I went to Glastonbury? It must have been Andy's fourth time or something. Was it twenty seventeen? Yeah, well, we went to we were at Glastonbury Festival. I'll let you I'll let you tell the story, Keith, and I've I've told it so many times. That's so let me think. So uh, when I get home, well, sorry, no, a seat at the table came out in I want to say October twenty sixteen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the following summer, so we went to Glastonbury, um, and. With Glastonbury, obviously, you buy the ticket and then the full line that comes up comes out like uh, sometime later. And we kept thinking, I want a Solandra we're playing, I want a Solandra we're playing. And then when we saw it on the lineup, we were obviously just freaked out and really excited. Yeah. Um, and she's on the West Holt stage. I think I went there to see the act before, who didn't really want to see that much, but just to get a good spot. And us and our group of friends were right at the front um, waiting for her. And it was just amazing when she came out. And then when she's doing Fubu um, for us by us. I'd seen previously, she kept looking over at us because it's glass and we've seen there's not many black people there, but there's a small concentration of us, like our we friends were the, and we two were the only, few yeah, other guys. We were the only black people there. But <laughs> yeah. we, we, we were conveniently bunched together. She kept glancing <laughs> over and then she looked at her, um, like the stage assistants and asked them to give her a hand down from the stage. I was like, oh my gosh, she's coming over here. Oh my gosh, she's coming over here. <laughs> and then um, destroying food, she came over and um, she uh, she's walked over. She was singing for a bit, you know, touching touching the hands. I actually felt a bit shamed because that was the one of the few times where I didn't know all the words for it. Right. And you know, you I was looking at you like yeah, sing yeah. along. I was like, also <laughs> 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 friend next to us, like you know, it was really good looking, really glamorous. Like she was like you know all over it, like held hands and screaming and stuff. Yeah. But it was um, it was just a great experience for her to acknowledge us um, and to come yeah. over after we'd. I think we'd all been aware of her growing up, but I, I'd not listened to her much music at all before that album. I said, like, the odd thing here and there. Um, but it was just nice for her to come over and also the meaning of that song mm-hmm. um, and how much she's for her people as well. Yeah, um, yeah. It was just one of the highlights of my 20s. It always will be. I always too. remember that. Yeah, me too. It was, like, it, it was amazing. <laughs> and she really sort of came out of nowhere with that album. Like, <laughs> like yeah. obviously she'd always been somewhere, but like, you know, she'd not released a full album since Sol Angel and the Hadley Street Dreams, whenever mm-hmm. that was, like mm-hmm. in 2008 or something. Yeah, well, something like that, yeah. yeah. Um, and like the true EP um, was great. And like, I love the direction mm. that she was going on with that. But then she sort of like broke contact with Blood Orange and you're like, no, Solange, <laughs> you had the right idea. And then she drops a seat at the table, like out of nowhere, like no one is expecting it at all. Like, no one's expecting Solange to release an album the same year as Lemonade. Yeah, true. Mm. First of all, mm. yeah. you, know, I've, you know, Beyonce's released her best album. Like, she's going to be number one in all of the end-of-year lists. And then Solange drops a seat at the table, which is arguably even better. And you're like, <gasps> what is going on with the Null Sisters? Are they in com- competition now? Like, where has Solange come from to be the only person who can compete with her sister? Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, like, absolutely, like, good for her. I mean, I saw her as well last year at um, Primavera. Oh, we were there as well. Like, no way. <laughs> we were, yeah. Uh, oh my god! You probably heard me singing. <laughs> it was um, I was I was, I was very drunk. I remember. I think I was, um, 
I wasn't with you, Ainsley. I think Ainsley managed to get into the VIP section somehow. I don't know how. Um, <laughs> I'm so and jealous. Was, I'm then, coming with you then, next time. You know what you're doing. <laughs> I was a bit further back than some other people. We were at the front of like the, the main section um, or the, right. the common section, not the special tickets. We were too. But, but like we were sort of stage right. But like literally there was like the barrier, then like one person, then me shouting in her ear. Like, yeah. I, was, I was singing Almeida at the top of my voice. Yeah. Oh, that was, yeah. I think that's the one track on the album everyone looks out for. Um, but it's mad, because I was thinking of the first time I listened to that album and being like, what's she doing? And then hearing her do that album live at Primavera and just thinking, I was just, I've done a complete 180 from how, how my, what my first impression was like from this album. But every time, every time I've seen her, it's just, it's just an experience. Such an experience. Yeah, yeah. she's an Crazy. incredible artist. Like, there's no one like her. Um, you know, the set design, the the dance moves, like the choreography, everything. Mm. It's so different from Beyonce, but just just as essential. Yeah, um, for me, um, you know, Almeida is one of the greatest records ever made. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like all time top ten easy. Mm. Like straight in. Like no. I hate to do this to you. What's that? Which album do you prefer out of when I get home or see it at the table? Oh definitely when I get home. Oh really? Straight definitely. in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I I really like a seat at the table. I love it. I think it's a great album. Um but when I get home just sounds unique. Like for what I get in a seat at the table, I could also go to Eric, to Erica Badu and Joel Scott. I I think I know what you mean because even even though it does stand out, it does seem to be in, in a similar mold to other neo soul or exactly R and B things. Exactly. Uh, with, when I get home, it's kind of it's very floaty. It's yeah. its own sound world. I think the yeah. fact that it had to grow on so many of us and it wasn't likable immediately, mm. which is because I mean, how often do you hear it at all? Not me. How often do you, well, I'm trying to think how often I hear an album and don't like it, but then I, then I do grow to like it. I tend to know straight away that I like an album, not, but that yeah, one absolutely. stuck upon you. It's, I think which just mm. is a testament to how different it is. It's magic. Uh, uh, like, yeah, but the great albums will always keep giving. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Writings mm-hmm. on the Wall by Destiny. So there we are. <laughs> no, giving to me. Like, I was listening to it the other day. Like, I was listening to it the other day and I was just like, she can't love you is a tune <laughs> like whoever talks about she can't love you like seriously like that is a great song i think my favorite non-release track would be sweet 16 um great song partly because oh, I was, is it latavia the, um mm. the, the, uh, like the deep the voice the, yeah yeah because yeah. i think because she, she, you actually hear her singing Mm. Um, she's not a great singer, but I just like the novelty of her deep voice and that, yeah. you know, in fact you don't hear her singing the lead line very often mm. um but that's that's I was the thing with the with Deathly Child and the album is that I'd not listened to the album in its entirety until much later. I knew mm. all the main tracks of it when I was a little kid, mm. but then like hearing it properly and it's just it you know the whole memory thing attached to the music, it just captures yeah. a moment in time um from what was it eighty eight or ninety sorry, ninety eight or ninety nine when it came out one of those years. Ninety nine, yeah. Um but it's just I always pinned that to a certain point in my childhood when I was happy and just how amazing they were and are it's um i just love that album i had an album, album with a friend the other day like yeah who, who reckons survivor is better um <laughs> she, 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 she's a mutual friend of me and ainsley but she she argued passionately that uh, survivor was better than it she, she, she just, she's not taking away from 
writings on the wall, but she felt very passionate that Survival was actually a more cohesive album. Nasty, put your clothes on, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> is not the one. Like, slut-shaming at its worst. Like, have you seen the video? It's just aged so badly. Yeah. yeah, I've seen it, yeah. Really badly. <laughs> like, <laughs> that al- yeah, that album was just rushed out. Like, they didn't have the same chemistry as the four girls had. I just love yet. DC4. Right, I just love DC4. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and... I mean, you know, look, listening to that music 20 years later now, you kind of realise how great they were. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, people sleep on black um, teenage girl bands because, you know, they're not supposed to be sort of, you know, cool enough for us to listen to. But they, I'm, I'm sorry, but that album's flawless. Like, the writing yeah. on the wall, the proper version with Get On The Bus at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. That's another underrated song as well. With all them, because that's Timberland. I think that's probably one of the first Timberland tracks I probably heard. But just the humming, Timberland, right? Right. I feel like we should actually talk a bit more about Rainbow Milk because we've gone off. So, in in each of our podcasts, we always go off on wild, wild tangents. That's great. It's natural. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I guess one thing I do want want to mention about. Um, Rainbow Milk and about Jess's story and everything is I guess um, when I was reading it I think one thing I really liked is that like even though Jesse undoubtedly has had like a pretty tough upbringing a pretty tough life that things don't always go that they want to I don't think the writing is necessarily centred on his trauma if you know what I mean I think that like, even though, like I said, if, even because of that, there are still some like bits of like real joy that you, that you see in it. Like there are, there are moments in it that, um, that I remember reading, I was like laughing out loud too, or little bits that I, that like, um, little like conversation that he had with like, especially like his best friend and stuff, which I really identified with. And I think, I guess that's one thing that I just wanted to like mention to you. Thank you. One thing that like I got from it is actually that, um, yeah, that, it's not it's not sense on trauma, which is good, and just like those moments, like even like it, it feels like a joyful novel when I got to the end of it. You good. feel hopeful mm. and happy rather than depressed and sad. Good, it's so good, and I think it's something that we need, especially for us mm. being black queer people. So I wanted to um, I wanted to make sure I pointed that out to you at some point. Thank you so much, James. That was very gratifying to hear. Thank you. I hope to do that a bit slicker than that, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I felt that. Like <laughs> that was nice. Um, no, you're right. Like I, um, I guess if I had written this book five years ago, which I really very much was intending and attempting to do, um, would have been centered a lot more on trauma mm-hmm. um, because I wasn't, I hadn't quite left that trauma yet, and I still haven't. Um, because obviously this is based on aspects of my personal life. Mm-hmm. I still haven't necessarily sort of written off those traumas, but I'm in a much safer place to write about them and to address them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get over them because I don't want to forget yeah. what I mm. went through. Um, and I want to be able to use, to, to um, invoke them to, to sort of give other people the benefits of my experience and also to, um, to show people who aren't familiar with us, for example, um, what the same world is like for Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, how we sort of go about our daily lives and how, you know, we all bring our individuality to every sort of moment and every sort of situation that we're in. And some people do not realize like what it is when, you know, they move their bag when you sit down next to them on the bus yeah. or you know, in that way that's not just like I'm, I'm moving this out of the way so you can sit down, but like I'm moving this out of the way because like you're black and I assume that you're going to try and rob me. Yeah. You know, and just drawing attention to microaggressions and all of those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, be, being older and like I said, being in a safe space, being in a different place to what I was in five years ago um, has allowed me the distance that I needed to be able to sort of write from a much sort of more, um, from a perspective that's slightly bigger than myself, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, or bigger than Jesse. Um, not forgetting his trauma, but like like you've pointed out, um, sort of making it part of something rather yeah, than just sort of sending it that, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. On the microaggressions part, that that is one thing that I that I did notice throughout the novel as well. Actually, is that like you definitely, definitely like kept like those little nuances, little nuances that I think people might miss. Mm. Like I remember there mm. being a scene where like Jesse meets a character, and like I think he like goes into his pocket to get a discman out, and one of them says something like, "Oh, I thought there was a knife or something mm. stupid like that." Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Or when. Um, a character says that like they were talking about like I don't know what I'm talking about it's like oh I'm just a black woman inside or, and not every gay man is like <laughs> <laughs> same guy in this yeah do you know like, how, how, think, how think my eyes good. are rolling when I <laughs> do you know what someone on Twitter like posted that line and said um, what did they say they just didn't get the irony of it at all like yeah. they were just like you know basically they thought I was legitimizing that idea that oh, everything right. yeah. that inside um, every white man is gay white man is you know what's what's interesting so when i when i read that page um he said it and i and i um so the character says it and then a few lines later jesse thinks it in his head Mm. but i read i just read the first part where the character says it and i was thinking oh i I think he's just put this in here to point it out but not everyone will get it and then a few few lines later when jesse thinks it i think Mm. okay i was kind of slightly relieved but oh it's I'm glad that you got that. <laughs> if, if, it just, if it just been the character saying it out loud, I yeah. wouldn't have known what conclusion to make. Um, or oh, whether Jesse heard... would ever challenge that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly yeah. He can't be seen. I couldn't let him get away with that. Yeah, like, I, was, I thought it's just going to let this slide. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't say anything, but at least it crossed his mind that um, that was yeah. a bizarre thing to say. Yeah. quite true to life. Like, Mm, exactly. Yeah, I've heard that said to me. Every single battle. No, exactly. But like, you can. That's the thing. In a novel, you have the space to do that. Yeah. You know, and you know, it was. I sort of didn't really set out to sort of write a lot of racial microaggressions, but um, when you're writing about the life of a young black man, especially a young working class black man who is new in town, doesn't really know where they're supposed to be, doesn't know how to handle themselves, hold themselves isn't sort of um, London trained, if you like. Um, <clears throat> there is going to be a lot of that. There is going to be a lot of sort of mistrust in him. Mm-hmm. I, When I was 19, I lived in um, Kent. I was studying at Greenwich University, uh, their partner college in, in Kent, in Tunbridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had an Afro. Sometimes I had cornrows. I had an Afro. I was like, you know, sort of quite rude boy looking, I suppose. I used to wear like tracksuits and stuff. And I had um, a black country accent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being down there, 
where you know there's there, there are no black people mm-hmm. um and the only well i suppose the only black people you see are on album covers like you know record sleeves like jazz record sleeves that people have in their houses mm-hmm. um literally no black people and i remember people sort of crossing the road when they saw me coming down and then you turn back and they crossed back onto this side of the road. They just didn't yeah. want to have anything to do with you. I remember um, a couple, sort of middle-aged couple walking up towards me. Um, and I, did, I didn't pay, him, pay them any attention. But the man sort of put his arm around his wife and sort of shepherded her yeah. away from me as they walked by. Mm. And, and things like that. And I think, first of all, I don't think people realise they're doing these things, maybe. Yeah. quite as blatantly as that otherwise i'm like you are evil <laughs> yeah. like if you know what you're doing that's evil um but people need to show that that what well, they need to be called out doing these things and to mm. be shown that these things aren't going unnoticed and that they do have a long-term effect on us yeah. and on our mental health on our self-esteem on our feeling on our feeling like we've got a right to be in a certain place mm-hmm. You know, and when mm. you see, you know, you're making a connection between those small things happening, and someone like George Floyd being murdered, and mm-hmm. you know, there's a link between. Yeah. And we, I feel like I'm always p- perpetually on this continuum between those two mm-hmm. things. You know, mm-hmm. whenever I'm in um, the vicinity of, of, I'm afraid to say it, white people, and you know, I almost have to always like come to a trusting relationship with certain white people before I can be myself around them because it's yeah. like, you know, what, what, what are you putting on me? What yeah. is your idea of black masculinity that you're putting on me right now that yeah. I'm going to have to do all this work to, to mm-hmm. uh, disestablish before yeah. um, you can see me as an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of having Jesse around just really does, I think help because mm-hmm. you get to see him over a period of about 15 years as well. Um, and, you know, you see how his life changes, how he becomes much more aware of who he is and what his presence does to, um, to people, what his, um, you know, how people respond to his presence and what he's always constantly having to do. To paraphrase very badly, James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. I think um, I've heard others mention that, or just discussing with friends and family. And I'm sure uh, I read an interview with Zadie Smith once said the similar thing when she was a little kid. And you feel like you have to, kind of overact or be on your best behavior is things like walking into a shop and being like super friendly so they yeah so they know oh we know oh this black person can be trusted yeah and i think it's the thing we've all yeah. done and learned to do subconsciously and it's so sad that we have to do that yeah in order to you know to prevent or curtail any future grief might get along the line yeah, yeah. um and it's, i think that's just a reaction to you know people crossing the road when they see you or I think you said it was a man and, and his partner, or sometimes it might be children like they'll like sort of shepherd them or mm, cover yeah. them or something, or someone locking a car door when you're approaching. Mm, yeah, I'm thinking oh I'm just God, walking along the, the street. Worst. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it's you're crossing the road. Someone, yeah, no, carry on. Sorry, I've, I've seen someone do that with a car, like you know, the most like banged out car. Because mm. basically, they were sitting on the wall. They were sitting on the wall on the other side of the street, and we were just walking. I'm thinking, like, the only person who's drawn attention to your car is you by locking the door. Like, literally, <laughs> who you can see would, I think it's me, I think it's a few brothers actually. I've got loads of brothers, obviously, we're all black, obviously. But, like, it's people see, like, a group of black boys, and, like, they'll see the worst. And half time, you're just minding your business. Yeah. And people, they see you as a threat. Mm. And it's like they don't want any interaction with you. 
but they risk an interaction with you by the things they do when we're yeah, just going absolutely. about our lives like it's yeah yeah it's infuriating but yeah, then you don't sound like you don't sound like you're whinging when you talk about it but how can you not talk about it when it happens so often but it happens every single day like in so mm. many different insidious locations and like times of the day and whatever like and it always springs a surprise on you and it always does surprise you even though you're so used to it yeah you mm. know and people don't realize that like every time you come into the vicinity of someone you have to start from scratch mm-hmm. and that's from a place where they assume things about black men you know they didn't even know that i'm queer straight mm-hmm. away obviously mm-hmm. you know um and that again that can be a different sort of set of circumstances that you're walking into you know based yeah. on the fact that you're queer as well um but it's you know people and people don't realize that you know i've worked like i said worked in restaurants for years and i was working at this particular restaurant um in uh central london great restaurant you know really well paid job etc etc um and one of the one of my fellow members of staff who'd been there for a a long time a white woman said because i was sort of complaining about some of the racial microaggressions that i'd sort of suffered and she said well no you're being silly there's no such thing as racism anymore (sighs) You know, Obama was still yeah. president then. Yeah. Um, there was another black waiter there who he's like um a soul singer and he's like really sort of like good looking and sort of smooth and whatever. Um, and gets on with absolutely everybody. Um and so she's like, you know, why don't you go and ask him? Like he'll tell you that there's no racism. Yeah. As if that, you know, like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's like, oh, it's just exasperating. It's just tired. It's so exasperating. <laughs> and to be honest, <laughs> it, it's so tiring. I didn't have an answer for her. Like, I just, I didn't have the energy. Like, yeah. And I still think about that day. And I still, you know, I want to drag her around and, and just sort of point out, like, absolutely everything to her so that she knows. Yeah, the, or just, like, read her to feel. <laughs> the best <laughs> example I saw. Exactly. <laughs> the best example I saw of this, like... I don't want to open up another can of worms topic, but the best example I saw was uh, we're, all, we're all aware of how Meghan Markle's been treated. And on Twitter, you'd see a lot of back and forth from people saying, the, race, the, the, um, the treatment she's gotten from the media is based in racism. And lots of people saying, no, it's not, it's because she's this, it's because she's that. And I thought personally with Meghan Markle, it's racism, sexism, and xenophobia all rolled into one. But someone then did a thread of um, or comparative articles every time that Kate and Megan had done similar things and how it was reported. It took someone doing a 20, it's actually like a 20 part thread on Twitter and then BuzzFeed came along and basically just plagiarised a thread. Um, the original creator didn't seem to care, she just she was happy, got wider exposure. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people reference the, Buzz, the, the BuzzFeed article that was born out of that thread now. Mm. And um, it, it takes something like that for them to like collate all these tiny examples that build up to you know what the actual situation is mm-hmm. and even then you'll get people saying oh no you're just you're overthinking it it's not because of that it's because she hasn't settled in properly it's because she wants to go against protocol it's not about racism why are you bringing color into it and it's it gets to a point where um you just don't you just don't want to engage with it anymore um it's like i've got other things to worry about and but then this, again we're not like, making any progress here like just <laughs> yeah i know i i really i've i've sort of shared that sort of belief for a long time and but now I'm kind of thinking maybe I do have to speak up a bit more I mean obviously you can't comment on everything you can't sort of call people out in every single situation because it is 
so exhausting and nobody wants to nobody wants that friend who's just like yeah. you know, <laughs> make a scene just go it's fine whatever um but yeah you have to sometimes do that like you know um because and I just don't understand why we always have to keep doing this, like you know every generation or every half generation um there's always going to be a moment where someone gets this kind of treatment, yeah, and people can't substantiate why they're treating them, that person that badly mm-hmm. um, they won't say that it's racism, they'll you know swear to their death that they're not racist, mm-hmm. but they're just not including this unconscious bias mm-hmm. in their definition of racism mm-hmm. whereas we probably are yeah. um and you know people don't want to sort of admit that they're wrong about things either yeah especially british people we just don't like to be wrong about things i feel yeah. like this kind of goes back to like when we talked about racism they're like actually a really helpful diagram that i saw on twitter kind of like in the kind of in the landscape of what's been going on where there's like overt racism that is when people call you the n-word when people um like actively discriminate you when they say things like say things that you can see with your own two eyes um in the i think in this country in britain um anyone will be quick to denounce that's that kind of racism mm. but of course there's whole institutions that have like racism at their core there are people who are heads of businesses who have been racist either um, overtly or not so, who have mm. have built up a culture so only people who look at that certain way are mm. going to the people who are not are not going to, mm. and it is that part of racism which is just so hard to fight because in this country we are the, the people see that so unwilling to confront it, mm. and yeah, an idea that like some basically the idea of privilege that people have have certain advantages that they haven't asked for that they haven't earned mm. that isn't necessarily their fault what they need to do but that, that word rubs people the wrong way in this country doesn't it privileged yeah. like yeah they'll, they'll just start saying i'm not privileged i'm from this background oh i've suffered this from my parents died in the war or something like this and i think it's i i, I appreciate it's a difficult topic probably to tackle if you've not had to, if you've not been confronted with it before um but i think what a lot of people aren't grasping is it's it's not saying you are a privileged person it's saying that you don't get any bother for the mm. colour of your skin. Exactly. Anybody you get isn't because of that reason. Yeah. Um, mm. I don't know. It's, I think sometimes, you, like I said before, you kind of... Either you forget about all this stuff happening or you get lulled into a false sense of security, but then you'll be brought back down to earth sooner or later at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. You can think that everything's great. And then, you know, I mean, I remember um, serving at the same restaurant um, a family um, and it was a sort of, you know, Sort of woman in her fifties, her husband, and their sort of three grown-up children. Um, and the daughter was pregnant, um, so I was sort of advising her what she could eat from the menu, what she should avoid, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Liaising with the kitchen, see what we could do for her. Um, the mum was just ordering wine with me and like asking, "Oh, what I want this kind of wine." So I was like getting tasting glasses for her and stuff, and like you know, then she had a bottle of this, and she thought, "Wow, this is amazing, great choice." And then drank the whole thing, and then, "Oh, now I want to go somewhere different." And so I got mm-hmm. another really good wine that she really enjoyed. Blah blah blah. Everything was perfect. Great service, you know, top top evening for them. 
And then when she finished her dessert, she sort of grabbed me by the arm and said, I need you at home. (laughs) (laughs) And her daughter was like, her her husband just rolled his eyes. Like as if to say, oh, "Oh, she's flirting with the waiter again. (laughs) her, 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 Her daughter was like, mom. And then, you know, the, the two sons, I don't think they said anything at all. Like, it wasn't anything. And I'm like, excuse me? She says, I need you at home. You're just perfect. You're polite and friendly and exceptional at your job. And, you know, I need you at home. Oh. And honestly, oh. like, <laughs> I honestly thought there was, like, a van outside with a cage in it waiting <laughs> <laughs> waiting to take me away like i i i was so shook like i could it's not possible for me to be good at my job and i I sort of thought to myself i need to get out of hospitality like this is yeah um, like i can't do this anymore like hospitality stuff get grief hospitality stuff get grief anyway before we even bring like any um yeah i loved working in restaurants i loved it I, you know, you drink for free, and most restaurants are terrible, but, like, you drink for free, you get great food, like, if you work in the right restaurant, like, the money's good, you get money in your account every um, month, but you also get cash tips every week. I'm not saying mm. this is every restaurant, but this was my experience. Having worked for 12 years in other restaurants, I finally sort of found myself in this really, really great restaurant. Um but you're sort of opening yourself up to that. And like, you know, there are just so many um, booby traps Mm -hmm. laid around Mm -hmm. when you're a person of color Mm -hmm. and especially when you're a black person. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like she might? Have, do you feel like that lady might have reflected after, or someone might have brought to attention? Or do you think they would have just changed the topic? And uh, well, my behaviour was unchanged it. after that. Like I just, <laughs> I took the payment. Like I didn't wave goodbye or anything. I didn't need anything more from them. Like I was just so shocked that she would say that. Like yeah, you know, I was playing Othello at the time while I was rehearsing for it anyway, and so I was just very sort of you had this very heightened sense of racism and I was, Mm. you know, this is a very sort of English restaurant um, and, you know, the walls are plain white, tablecloths, plain white, uniforms, plain white, all the staff are white, all the customers are white and then there's just me. And so I was sort of having nightmares about, you know, this kind of sort of racial paranoia coming to swallow me up, you know? Yeah. and I just think that people just don't know what they're doing sometimes. And they don't no. know how triggering the things that people say to them can be. You know, they might think that it's a joke. Like, I've had people say very much like the character telling Jesse, oh, I thought you had a knife. Yeah. Um, when I'm sort of mm. um, changing, so if someone's ordered a steak or whatever, and I'm changing to a steak knife, and I sort of reach over their shoulder to change the knife, and someone looks up over the shoulder and says, oh, I thought you were going to stab me. Oh my god, yeah. Come on. Like <laughs> you don't have to do this. Like yeah. you don't have to. But it's You're ruining difficult. my day. It's difficult because it's like it's so deep inside them. Um yeah. which, which doesn't mean it which doesn't mean it can be excused, but that's the that's what we're up against. Yeah. That, and they think it's humor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's a racial microaggression. Yeah, exactly. Just and that's why they're going to turn around and say, "I'm just joking." Can't you take a joke? Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, exactly. No. Yeah, because of four centuries. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, 
Anyway, again, we could talk about this forever. But, I was going to say, um, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but it is exasperating, though. Like, uh. It really is. But one <laughs> thing I will say is um, there's a film uh, currently on Vimeo showing called There's Always a Black Issue, Dear. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Um, and it's a documentary film. It's only about half an hour long, but it um, interviews um, a group of... Um, Cutipoc people who mm. moved to London from elsewhere in the country or already lived in London in the late 70s and early 80s. Mm-hmm. And it sort of catches up with them now talking back at that time, reflecting on how things have changed. Um, and it's like we were sort of talking a little earlier about our elders and how important they are. Yeah. And, you know, just thinking about our black queer elders mm-hmm. um, and, you know, what sort of advice and wisdom they have for us. And also, you know, how great they still are. Yeah, um, that's a really sort of like really interesting watch. So I would recommend that to all of um, our listeners. Excellent. So the title was "There's Always." There's always a black issue, dear. Okay. Oh, well, I guess we hope you've got two two spotlights in one episode. So that's wonderful. You get value for money with me. <laughs> <laughs> on a run of um, of like watching films, reading books, and discussing them on the podcast. So. I'm sure the next one that we release, we can we can include that and um, give our thoughts on it on 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 air. Okay, good, cool. But yes, awesome. um, if you haven't got anything more to say, um, yeah, I think we're. Thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us, Paul. Really Very appreciate welcome. it. My pleasure. Reaching in so many ways, I feel like we've managed to get some joy out of it, even though we are in quite testing times, as you um, as you say. So. As I said before, uh, Paul is the uh, author of Rainbow Milk. Um, it is available at all good bookstores. Make sure you buy it. It is an enthralling read. Um, we got through it. I got through it. I'm such a slow reader, and I got through it like pretty quickly. What about you, Key? I'm sure you, you got it. Uh, about three days. Yeah. And nothing else. Like you've made, you've like created a book about two black queer boys from Birmingham. Uh, that I think we've never seen to see ourselves in. So if nothing else, like I am so grateful. Kieran is so grateful too for that as well. Absolutely. So thank you so thank much. Yeah, uh, we're Black Boy Joy. Um, you can find us on any of your um, stream platforms: Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. If you are on Apple Podcasts and you like what you hear, please leave us a glowing five star review. If you don't, then just not say anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, keep your mouth shut. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> don't want no bad reviews. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can follow us on Instagram. We're at Black Boy Joy Podcast. You can follow Paul as well on Instagram. What's your handle, Paul? PJ Mendes underscore. PJ Mendes underscore. Um, we right have up. a Twitter that we are being more active on as well. It is Black Boy Joy Pod. That is B L K B O Y J O Y P O D um, on Twitter. And if you have any questions, any comments, we love feedback. We like um, if you want to throw any shade at us, if you want to um, point anything out, then you can email us at blackboyjoypodcast at gmail.com. But um, if there's nothing else to say, then yeah, we're, we're done here. That's another one done. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy and a pleasure and um, all the best. Um, thank you so much for your kind words about the book. Um, oh, and I'm just really pleased that, like, yeah, we've got a 
look about black queer kids from the West Midlands that we could talk about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much, guys. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Take care. Have a good one.